As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Yo. Technology. What is it all about? SF is the black hole. <laughs> There's nothing interesting there. Like I have this data point I've tweeted, but I'll share it with you that I can't find a single interesting company that was founded after March 14th, 2020 in San Francisco. There's nothing I wish we were Not in. one. Not one that I wish we at Founders Fund. And I imagine you've seen thousands of companies in the intervening three years. Well, collectively across the partnership, but I still have yet to see one that I wish we were an investor in. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. Before we get to this week's show, I just wanted to give a quick note about last week. Um, Of course, rather than the regularly scheduled programming, we ran an episode of our sister podcast, Stories of Our Times, where I was on to talk about just the total madness that had broken out at OpenAI. And we figured it would be a bit silly to run something other than the biggest story in tech last week. And frankly, I was completely up to my eyeballs in writing about it, covering it. All of which is to say I had meant to put out a little note at the top of that episode just explaining that, you know, we were running that episode last week, but then we'd be back to normal this week. I didn't do that very clearly. And anyway, for those who were a bit confused or surprised, my apologies. It would just been a crazy couple weeks. But the good news is we're back, back to normal. And we have a good one this week. On the program, we have one of the original members of the PayPal Mafia. This is the group of executives who, along with Elon Musk, created PayPal way back in the day. Then went on to found a bunch of other companies, become investors, generally play very big kind of outsized roles in Silicon Valley and the tech world over these last two decades. And so we're very happy to bring on Keith Raboy, who he was there at PayPal. After that, he went on to LinkedIn. He was a chief operating officer at Square, the big publicly traded fintech. He was at Coastal Ventures for many years. And these days he is at Founders Fund, the venture firm set up by Peter Thiel, another member of the PayPal Mafia. He also runs OpenStore, an e-commerce platform. And as you will soon hear, the man has strong views on Silicon Valley, which he very noisily left during the pandemic. He moved to Miami and kind of flamed San Francisco on the way out. We talk about remote work, the present and the future of the tech boom in which we currently find ourselves. Keith has a very, very good track record of investing. He's backed loads of unicorns. And, you know, he's not at all shy about sharing his views. So if nothing else, you'll come away with a few nuggets on investing and perhaps some things to argue with your friends about, for example. 
just this uh, this week. You know, this was in the wake of Elon Musk very controversially telling his advertisers to go F themselves. This is over this uh, anti-Semitism row on X. In the wake of that, uh, Keith tweeted, without X, we would almost surely be confronting another Holocaust now. So thank you, Elon Musk. So that just gives you a flavor. I'm not really sure what that even means. I don't really get it, but Keith, he has strong views, deep ties in the tech world. He is now out in Miami trying to kind of turn Miami into a tech hub, lots going on. So here he is without further ado, Keith Raboy of Founders Fund and Open Store. Enjoy. You very famously uh, left West Coast Paradise for East Coast Paradise. So how long has it been now? Almost exactly three years. How's Miami, especially as a, like, a, a, you know, in the world of tech? I mean, Miami's an amazing city. Everybody here is happy, safe. The economy's doing really well. People are excited to build. They're not distracted with stupid things. And so humans are humans. Entrepreneurs are humans. Engineers are humans. People crave happiness and healthy. It's the healthiest, happiest city in America. And people who are building companies want to also be happy. Uh, so the tech scene is thriving. We've moved a significant portion of Founders Fund here. Four, four and a half of 12 investors live here permanently. We have an office here in Wynwood that's really exciting and vibrant. Anybody comes by, welcome. Anybody's an entrepreneur, welcome to come by. The bigger energy here is just you know completely different than the Bay Area. So yeah, I feel like I wake up every day. I'm in heaven, paradise. I go to work, come back home. I'm on vacation. Wake up in the morning, go back to work. Still in heaven. So what turned you, and for those who follow you on Twitter, they, they may know this, but for those who don't, why did you leave the Bay Area? Because obviously you were he- out here for many years and, you know, it's Silicon Valley. It's the, you know, the epicenter of tech, et cetera, et cetera. What made you uh, get up and get out? Yeah. So, I mean, I worked and lived in the Bay Area for 23 years uh, from 2000 to 2020. And plus, uh, prior to that, actually, a few years of education. And it was very obvious that the Bay Area was on a steep decline between homelessness, drug abuse, crime, un- excessive taxation, regulation. Every policy in the world in an urban environment was backwards in the Bay Area. And it was obvious that things were going to get worse before they might eventually get better. New York City kind of lived through this in the 1970s with blackouts, crime, garbage strikes, you know, et cetera. And it took a catastrophic mess before the voters revolted in the 1980s. And it was possible to fix New York City. And New York City today is fairly vibrant, fairly energized, fairly safe. Um, But I don't think the barrier is quite there yet. And so I didn't want to live through three to four years of hell. Uh, This is also during COVID. And so the Bay Area had these ridiculous lockdowns, uh, irrational mask policies, shutting down schools, nothing that made any sense. And so, again, time is valuable. It's one of my mantras. The most scarce resource of your life is time. It's the most undervalued asset you have. And I didn't want to waste two years of my life sitting in the Bay Area locked at home when it was very obvious you could live, most people could live their lives very normally, like in Sweden or in Miami in open cities and not waste, you know, a fraction of their lives sitting at home, whining, miserable, non-social, isolated. And it's really interting now that we're what we're almost end of 2023 now. 
How do you think the kind of the tech ecosystem is evolving? Obviously, you're in Miami and there's, you know, something building there. But obviously, there's a ton going on out here, especially around AI and all these startups and everything else. And then overlaid on that is this idea of hybrid work or work from anywhere. How do you see the kind of this universe evolving when we think about if if we're thinking about, you know, the tech solar system, if, you know, for the past many decades, Silicon Valley has been the sun. Do you think it will continue to be so? Or do you think we are seeing a kind of a, a, a broadening and it's kind of spreading out? SF is the black hole. <laughs> There's nothing interesting there. Like I have this data point I've tweeted, but I'll share it with you, that I can't find a single interesting company that was founded after March 14th, 2020 in San Francisco. There's nothing I wish we were Not in. one. Uh, not one that I wish we at Founders Fund. And I imagine you've seen company. thousands of companies in the intervening three years. Well, collectively across the partnership, but I still have yet to see one that I wish we were an investor in. Um, and that's three years. In contrast, in New York, I found very interesting companies that are doing very well and thriving. In Miami, we found very interesting companies that are doing well and thriving. Outside SF, maybe in the greater Bay Area, there's still some hope. In Southern California, there's a lot of hope and aspiration, especially in defense space technologies, areas, you know, that are very differentiated. SF was never really made to be a tech hub. Yeah, it was really a post-2008. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of a fiction. You know, most people either don't have the benefits of uh, history or haven't bothered to study. But, you know, almost every iconic company other than Salesforce, which is a pretty important company, was not based in San Francisco. And before 2008, it was basically nothing important was based in San Francisco. Um, So first... Let's start with, um, I think the culture of San Francisco is broken. It's a monoculture. It had all this woke political correctness, which is a distraction. And then you layer on remote work and remote work is fatal to startups. Like, so we do not fund companies that are remote based at Founders Fund, period. It doesn't matter where they are. And we've all, almost everybody at Founders Fund who works there has built at least one company successfully. And we know as a matter of fact that it just does not work. So we're not going to waste our time, our money with distractions. So the Bay Area is still locked down in this theoretically bankrupt world of remote work. Um, interestingly enough, Rickling, which is a great company, yeah. is doing phenomenally well. And Parker doesn't allow any remote work. He's, as far as I can tell, the only successful CEO in the Bay Area who absolutely at scale refuses to create, to cave to the received wisdom that hybrid and remote work is actually possible to be successful as a startup. So that's another, it's a reinforcing problem. But when I go back to the Bay Area, some of the companies I'm involved in, you know, on paper are doing really, really well, but they are not back in the office four or five days a week. They have not fixed their broken culture. And I feel that there's a cohort of companies that were kind of born and raised in a vintage sort of speak like wine that were based on this, um, you know, sort of distorted premise that may never achieve their full potential because they were built in the Bay Area. They scaled during COVID when the rest of the world realized that remote work is broken. The Bay Area is still in this foggy zone where they haven't figured out figured that out. There's starting to be more and more founders, more and more CEOs, more and more executive teams that have realized this. But they just don't know how to put the genie back in the bottle. And very few have taken the dramatic step of just saying, we're putting the genie back in the bottle. You don't have to work here. There's plenty of options in the world. You can go work wherever the hell you want. You're a free agent, but you're not working for me. 
How do we know that that is a broken system? Well, when someone other than GitLab builds a successful startup, yeah. then uh, they can talk about it. But uh, so far, there isn't anyone that's built a successful startup that's remote other than Git, GitLab. And I do believe that an open source layer is a potential exception because when you're an open source company that predicated yeah. on open source software, you have distributed contributors all around the globe. And part of the art is to manage those, those contributors, excite those contributors. And so there's a justification in a very, very specific, I wouldn't say niche because it could be very exciting, but a segment where there's a logic to remote or distribution. Everywhere else, it's sort of an excuse. I don't want to do the hard work. Company building is really hard, difficult, tremendously challenging. And people who have excuses do not thrive as founders. I'm curious to get your take on this moment, stepping back from the remote work thing, which again is kind of continuing to play out in lots of different interesting ways around this AI bubble, this AI moment. And I think what's really interesting is unlike crypto, which I still don't totally understand the use case, the killer app, whatever you want to call it, it all seems very vague and hand wavy. AI seems on its face, it's just so much more easily understandable why this is useful in lots of different contexts. But a lot of the startups feel like these kind of cool features that maybe aren't going to really be products. And a lot of these companies that had massive valuations very quickly are already cutting people and realizing that people actually don't want to pay for this because it's actually not quite fully baked yet, et cetera. What is your view of like where we are in this cycle because it does feel like we're in this really strange time of crazy valuations and a lot of nonsense. Yeah, I mean, our view collectively at Founders Fund on AI is it will have massive transformative impact in society. It is a technology that has real potential and has real use cases, as you alluded to. However, that does not mean it makes sense to be a founder of an AI company, nor does it make sense to be a VC investor in an AI company. There are technologies that are sustaining innovations for large incumbents, and there's technologies that are incredibly disruptive. We don't believe that AI is a disruptive technology. It is a sustaining technology in almost all cases, which means venture investors and founders are not going to do very well. What is that difference between sustaining and disruptive? So Chris Dixon from Andreessen to Horowitz uh, published a blog post about uh, on this topic about five, seven years. I highly recommend it to anybody. It's really like a cut and paste and synthesis of Clint Christian's work at Harvard Business School, but it's pretty powerful. The distillation nails most of it. So the basic concept is that technology can be a friend and accelerate the business model of people who have a lot of traction. Think Google, Microsoft, et cetera, Apple, whoever. And there are some technologies that actually undermine the traction of large incumbents. And those are by far the better investments as a VC yeah, and probably better as a founder. Uh, so you always have to ask yourself, is this question, is this technology likely to empower the incumbents or likely to disrupt them and make their life miserable? That's when you want to invest. So, for example, the speed at which you see these large incumbents investing and adopting a new technology is almost unprecedented. That alone should suggest that's probably sustaining. Secondly, if you're going to build an AI-based startup, data is your friend, i.e. the bigger the set of data, the larger the data set you have, the more likely you can do something interesting with that. So is it likely that a small startup with VC money is likely to have a larger data set than some large institution? Probably not. 
And so you start asking yourself these questions, how can I capture value? And then, by the way, there happens to be this really good startup that was founded eight years, seven, eight years ago called OpenAI. So if you were going to place a bet, the bet to place in the startup ecosystem was probably OpenAI, not like some new random startup. I do think you can use AI just like people use Flash as an ingredient, and it can be a very powerful ingredient to deliver a value proposition to the end customer who has no idea that you're using AI. They don't care. You're just creating a better product, a better experience, faster, more responsive, more accurate, cheaper, because you're able to leverage AI. That's great. But AI qua AI is not a value to an end customer. We really think that fundamentally, you know, the, the key criteria for an AI startup to succeed would be somebody who can capture distribution, capture adoption. Yeah. The fundamentals of building a company from scratch are the same. You need a customer acquisition engine and a value proposition that's incredibly compelling so that it cuts through the clutter. If you had that paired with technology, technologists and a competitive advantage or accumulating advantage of some sort, that is investable. So are you saying basically thus far in this kind of mad era in which we find ourselves, you guys have not found that yet? Are you basically on the sidelines so far? Yeah, I mean, we invested in open AI, but we're not really interested in AI qua AI startups. Right. Is that hard to do, to feel the FOMO? Or maybe you don't even feel FOMO listening to you talk. Maybe it's just like, no, this is like clearly just not. If we're in the business of founding big companies and making money, this isn't a thing. Yeah, I mean, obviously, if you studied venture the last 50 years, the average venture investor is not very good, does not produce distributions yeah. at scale, not produce returns. So the last thing you want to be as a VC or as a fund, individual VC or as a fund, is to do what other people do. That, by definition, puts you in the middle of the bell curve, which is not acceptable. It is just not an acceptable performance. So you have to have this, I call it the JOMO uh, sort of... Uh, JOMO? Joy of missing out. Um, <laughs> and the more Jomo you have, probably the better you're going to be as an investor. Um, there's probably some screen that I should do, like, you know, filter yes, people. for sure. On an interview basis. But you need, you really need to not, to be immune from what other people think uh, as investors. So, for example, I mentioned in other podcasts that my personal asset test for early stage investing, Seed Series A, is I really want to invest when I feel that half of my friends who are VCs will laugh at me when they read about the announcement. Then I know that I'm, you know, not being a sheep, not in the middle of the bell curve, taking, you know, real venture risk for venture return. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Venture is such a funny industry because it has this kind of mystique around it. And it seems so cool and everybody theoretically is very smart, etc. But as you say, the kind of the, the dirty secret is most firms aren't very good, don't produce very good returns, and most firms are one fund and done. I don't know if they, they die after one fund because there's reasons why, like the feedback cycle is a little long and stuff. So they may have a little bit more lifespan than that, but they don't work very well. Um, there's been six years in the last 50 where it's generally moderately easy to produce some returns, the internet yeah. bubble, 96 to 99, and then arguably 2019 to about 21. Outside those five, six years, being a successful venture investor is actually a pretty significant challenge. And so you are investing via Founders Fund. You're also doing another thing, Open Store. Yes. So in my desire for more and more challenges in my life, I'm also simultaneously serving as CEO of a 130-person company based in Miami called Open Store, which is goal of Open Store is to reinvent commerce. So in the West, no one has really cracked e-commerce since the late 90s. The companies you know of and think of were really built in the 90s. And none of them really address serendipitous discovery, so low purchase intent purchases. So in the real world, I'd argue 40 to 60% of transactions in the real world are marketed. I.e., You walk into a store and you see this cool shirt on a mannequin and you say, hey, that's pretty cool. I want one. Or you see the sneakers on display and you're like, those yeah. are really cool sneakers. And nobody in the West really has a way of doing that online. So what we do is we aggregate Shopify brands, brands built on Shopify that have been pretty successful, acquire them or what we call run them and drive them, stitch them together into a destination experience that will allow consumers at scale on the home screen of their phone to discover products that they didn't know they needed, but that they're really attracted to. So how's that different from, I don't know, the Amazon store front page? Well, Amazon doesn't really have these products. Amazon is wonderful, by the way. If you know you need something, it is a great search engine to discover a price-efficient, satisfying, satisfying, in a satisfying sense from an economic perspective, really efficiently, a pretty good product at a very good price with reliable delivery. Amazon is horrible, somewhat intentionally, at surfacing things to you to buy that you had no idea existed in the world. Yeah. The way that that currently happens insofar as it does happen, which is moderately rare, is through an Instagram feed. So you're surfing Instagram, you're looking at your friends' stories and feeds and reels, and you get interrupted by an ad unit. And roughly 1.2% of the time, someone clicks on that ad unit, and then roughly 2% of those clicks yield a purchase for a product you didn't know you needed. Think about that, 1.2% times 2%. The math of that means basically it's the most inefficient experience ever. That is the only way at scale in the United States that people discover products that they didn't know existed. So we're going to fix that. That's the goal. The way we fix it, though, is we start with finding Shopify brands that are in our what we call our buy box, say 500K, to sale, 500K of annual sales to up to $10 million, and we offer to buy them or we offer to run their businesses. And then we take those products, those SKUs, we now have over 100,000, over 120,000 of these SKUs, put them all together in one experience where people can be delighted 
in discovering new products. So we have over 2 million consumers who bought something from us in the last year. We're going to turn that into a destination app very soon where you put it on the home screen of your phone and then you constantly bypass the need to go to a shopping mall. So right now it's not unified in an app. I couldn't download Open Store and say, okay, oh, here's all the stuff. Not currently yet, but very, very soon, I like this month. So how are you doing that? How are you stitching those together and creating this kind of serendipitous, let me show you something cool you didn't know you needed? Yeah, so that's the magic because I don't think you can use a conventional approach. I don't think people wake up in the morning and say, oh, you know what? I really want to see what products I've never heard of before that I need. So you need to stitch together a different experience and a different value proposition on top of that to make it interesting. So for example, people do go to the design district here a mile and a half from my house in Miami. When I grew up in New Jersey, we went to the shopping malls all the time. That was like a social experience. We went to the shopping hall, uh, shopping mall is a place to hang out with our friends. Like, yeah. You know, we had all these reasons to go to the shopping mall. And it's very inconvenient to go shopping in the real world, by the way. Like, you have to go between the hours of call at like 11 to 6 or 7 when you're supposed to be at school or working mostly. You know, you have to park, you have to travel. There's a lot of friction. Imagine if you could have all the benefits or most of the benefits of a shopping experience like a mall, but with none of the friction. That's what we're trying to build. And to do that, you need to recreate some of the benefits of going to a, a design district or a shopping mall. To an online mall. Yeah, but Ish. not it won't it won't be described that way. And it without without like Orange it, Julius. Recreate <laughs> the like we would be super successful. Like a metric would be if I can cut the number of trips I I take to a mall or a shopping center by half, because this product exists, that would be a home run. So right now how are you driving people to those experiences? Is it basically Instagram ads or is it TikTok ads or? It's primarily the majority is paid social and Instagram. That's what we inherited when we purchased these businesses from the original brand builders. And we continue that. And then we have already started cross category, cross selling. So exposing people who brought, let's say a Jack Archer pants to new products from other brands that they may be interested in. So that's already live. That works. We're going to make it better and better, more targeted, more frequent, more powerful. But that's already happening. And then we're now working on the destination where you start your experience. And that's the app. That would be an app. Got you. I'm curious because it sounds like you're stitching together a lot of these brands which aren't like toothpaste and toilet paper, you know, essentials, but like basically things that people buy when they ha have extra money and are feeling good. What is your sense of what is happening in this weird economy right now with interest rates where they are and house prices coming down and all this kind of, but also growth still happening? What What is your view from on the coalface? Well, in the short term, any metric you look at, consumers are still spending, whether or not they should be, they are. They're spending on discretionary items, purchases, travel, vacations, et cetera. But affordability is a very real thing. With interest rates being this high, mortgage payments are extremely expensive. Credit card debt payments are extremely expensive. Car payments are extremely expensive. So at some point, these things do need to get reconciled. Interest rates are not going down meaningfully in any compressed period of time. So one way or the other, we're going to have to fix this. It's a major societal issue, actually. But if you look at consumer behavior, and I'm involved in a lot of companies that actually are in the financial services industry directly to consumers as a board member, 
you don't really see too many obvious signals that consumers are changing their purchase behavior. Now, some of our products will do well in a recessionary environment because they're inexpensive alternatives to very expensive you know, luxury brands. So people may substitute from a $10,000 X to a $3,000 Y or from a $500 X to a $50 Y. And so some of our brands are luxury and some are um, you know, more affordable, more approachable. So the dynamics do change in a recession, but you really can't see consumers pulling back on their spend yet. Fascinating. I keep wondering when that's going to happen. You can't see it empirically. Uh, you know, anecdotally, you do hear this in different ways. And, you know, I'm a little bit of a fan of Bezos's comment that the data and anecdote, anecdotes conflict. Go with the anecdotes. So there's some truth here, but credit cards are still being used. And maybe it's because of the subsidization through debt. And, uh, but right now, you do see a little bit of pullback on inventory, meaning I think a lot of larger brands have stocked less inventory going into holiday yeah. season or this year. So they're projecting less purchases than they might have or might in other years. So we'll see if the large retailers are correct in that assessment. Right. I wonder if we could just go back just to give listeners, especially overseas listeners who may not know the whole PayPal story, you know, kind of how you ended up doing what you're doing here. If we could go back to when um, you were in California and I, is it, did you go to Stanford? Is that correct? I did. I attended Stanford a long, long time ago. Galaxy far away, kind of long, long time. <laughs> yes, yeah, so I joined PayPal in late 2000. My friend from college, Peter Thiel, had been reinstalled as interim CEO of PayPal on September 25th, 2000, after Elon Musk had been fired. Yep. And um, about six weeks after Peter came back, he helped recruit me to PayPal. So I moved from the East Coast where I was living to Palo Alto uh, and started work on the next Tuesday, even though we negotiated, you know, sort of terms offer title responsibilities on Thursday. Right. Somehow or another, I was starting on Tuesday, he insisted. To do what? My official title at first was uh, VP of Competitive Strategy, which was really focused on preventing, we had a lot of enemies at PayPal. Uh, Visa MasterCard at the time hated us and wanted to kill us. We had the federal government later after 9-11 wanted to impose all these regulations that would have suppressed PayPal usage meaningfully. We had state governments that didn't like us for this or that reason. eBay later decided, even though we were the best thing ever for liquidity in their marketplace and we were really exploding and helping really explode the eBay success story, they decided they wanted to try to kill us and beat us. So I had a lot of people to massage. Over time, I expanded the portfolio of things I was responsible to run our corporate comms, to run our financial services team, which is really how the underlying plumbing, the relationships we have all across the globe that connect the money and make the money go from point A to point B successfully and accurately. I managed a bunch of other teams, uh, you know, they were working on uh, growth sectors. So wound up collecting a bunch of projects. Pretty much Peter's management style was Anytime he wasn't happy with how a team was performing, he would just change the leadership. And I got, I inherited a few messes and right. you know, I kept running them. So it's the, it's the weirdest couple, like, combination of like eight different departments, I think. Anyway, we sold, we went public, we did fix the company, you know, turn the company from losing roughly $10 million a month, which back then was a lot. And that's a of lot money. of money back then. Yeah, 2000 was a lot of money. Uh, we didn't see these kind of crazy burn rates. Uh, to being break even four or five months later, really, and then profitable. And then we filed to go public. We had a public offering in 
in February, actually, of 2022. And then as a public company, we also got acquired by eBay later that year. And as a result of that transaction, many of us, Peter, Reed Hoffman, Roloff Bota, Max Levchin, went on and left the company to do other new projects. And that's you know what led to the building of a bunch of different really interesting companies over the last 20 years. The so-called the PayPal mafia. Correct. I'm curious, you know, I've written about other kind of, I'll call them mini mafias. You know, one that comes to mind is like Uber. Uber has produced a bunch of people who have gone on to found companies because they all had this very unique experience of like going from zero to a whole hell of a lot. And obviously Uber had its own problems and has continued to have its challenges, although it's finally seems to be making money. Is there something in particular about that time or PayPal itself that shaped, you know, because it's Peter Thiel, Reed Hoffman, as you say, yourself, Elon Musk was there. A lot of people who have gone on to, you know, build big stuff. Is there something particular about the company or that time that you kind of took away? Yeah, I mean, I think, first of all, uh, hiring. At the end of the day, uh, Peter and Max hired phenomenal people with significant ambition and talent. And they deserve the credit. Max basically hired the engineers and Peter hired the non-engineers. And so by far the most important thing is finding ambitious, talented people who, who want to you know, put a dent in the universe, kind of so to speak, and be able to correctly identify those people early in their career. So critical density of talent, most important thing in building a company, but also empowering future generations of companies. Secondly, PayPal is really difficult. You know, I mentioned some of the challenges we confronted. Uh, there are many others too. And so it was a good testing ground for people's abilities. It was very, it was pretty easy to tell who would thrive under pressure and who wouldn't. And so that also helps you project into the future when people are building their own companies, who to invest in, what teams to join, et cetera. So because it was not an easy business, it actually helped predict future success. Third is I think this is not controversial now, but at the time, maybe it was a little bit you know, edgy. We had two, a couple of different philosophies. One, then the standard Silicon Valley establishment. One was we had a significant emphasis on customer acquisition and distribution. I talked about that in terms of AI, so it's a pretty coherent set of views. But we really believe that the product and distribution need to be synchronized and linked together. And that that was just as important as any other component piece of uh, the company. Second, um, a very meritocratic culture. We hired and fired people based on performance. It didn't, we didn't hire people with lots of experience or with fancy titles and really let people uh, show how far they could go. And there was no you know, predefined limits. So we had a very young team, inexperienced team, but that team was able to propel a lot of significant breakthroughs. I think those are the fundamental ingredients, actually. Easy to say in theory, very hard to replicate in practice. Yeah. Is there a, um, a key hiring question or two that you still ask now? I don't. I mean, everybody has their own. You know, Peter used to ask this question about, like, what do you believe to be true that the rest of the world doesn't? For founders, you know, he also is asked, as the media has reported, you know, how are you going to recruit your 20th engineer, which is a really important question. Like, do you have the ability to create this unfair advantage, this aggregation, critical density of right. talent? And the first few you can do through your own network. But when you get to the 20th, you've got to have a pretty compelling story that you can embrace. I tend to not to use sort of pseudo gimmick questions. I do generally try to find 
what is the superpower basically of people I'm interviewing? Like, what are they really extraordinary at? I think you get farther in life by taking advantage of your comparative advantage than by being super well-rounded. So I'm trying to isolate, like, what is this, what's the most special thing about you? And then match make you to the right company or right role. Just a couple of things. One was that you guys announced a fund and then shrunk it. Is that correct? Yeah. So we had planned on raising about a $1.8 billion venture fund. And then after we got all, uh, solicited and received all these commitments, we realized that there weren't going to be enough opportunities to really produce returns at $1.8 billion. And when was that? Was that this, earlier this year? Uh, no, no, no. Uh, so we announced the fund initially at the $1.8 billion, probably halfway through maybe June of 2021. Okay. And then we course corrected uh, pretty radically, slashed the fund size in half, and you know have roughly a $900 million fund, which is still pretty large by you know historical venture standards. But it's at least possible to maybe return money on that size fund. $1.8 billion, I think, would have been virtually impossible to see impressive distributions. Why? We're in the business of what we uh, finding extraordinary founders. We believe that the team you build is the company you build and that everything comes down to the quality of your founding team. And there aren't that many people that are going to build a company from zero to infinity that have that potential and they're unfortunately scarce. And so you cannot invest in enough companies to produce returns, so you're just going to waste the rest of the money. And the larger the, the pool is, you're measured on multiples, so it gets increasingly difficult. And then you get you know, seduced by the need to quote-unquote invest, and that also is not necessarily a great idea. But was it kind of twas ever thus though, right? Like that scarcity of finding you know, those very, very special people who have a vision and ability to execute. What got you to the point of like, oh, well, we can, we have 1.8 million. That's amazing to like, actually, this is a bad idea. Well, I think as you started looking into the ether and saying, how many of these special companies are there going to be? How much capital do they really need versus what the market was allowing companies to raise up between 19, 20, 21? So there's this inflation in financing, inflation in the round sizes. All of these were bad, but they led to a deployment speed pace, even for maybe a well-run fund, that was pretty aggressive. And so as we realized that, A, the world was going to change and that this powering money into companies that weren't working was going to stop, B, that even if it didn't stop, we didn't want to be doing it, that led to projecting over the next three or four years that the number of extraordinary founders times the amount of capital they should prudently raise would multiply to a very small number compared to 1.8 billion. And so therefore, because we have a fund that is heavily aligned with our LPs, our general partners invest a fair amount of money. We have the same incentive structure as our LPs. We don't really rely upon our management fees. And so it's very easy actually for us to do this. It was politically incorrect, meaning it's unfortunate when you tell somebody, yes, let's say you tell Harvard, they can invest $50 million. They have to go back to him and say, no, we didn't really mean it's 45. It's not like a great conversation. But at the end of the day, all of our LPs were excited because they knew our incentives were aligned with theirs, which is to produce meaningful returns. Well, it's interesting you say that because I was just, I was did a piece this past week on 
linking SBF and FTX and WeWork because obviously SBF got found guilty, you know, basically in the same week that WeWork went bankrupt. And you have these two companies that just raised obscene amounts of money and in crazy valuations and it's all come unwound. But it felt crazy at the time. But then you, it takes a few years for the kind of to play out that string and you realize, oh my God, like kind of 2020 hindsight, what were people thinking? Well, some of it was obvious at the time, some of it a little less obvious. But for your point earlier, when you're kind of in the middle of a proverbial thought bubble, let's call it Silicon Valley, if everybody's doing it, everybody's thinking the same, those questions tend to get suppressed a bit. They do. And lastly, before I let you go, so when you're talking about fund size, the one that immediately jumps to mind is like um, Andreessen. They've now got many, many, many billions. So do you think they're just destined to not perform very well? With that fund size and with that scale partnership, yes. I don't think venture is a super scalable business. I know they're trying. And I understand the logic of what they're trying to do. They're basically trying to productize the enterprise software company and turn it into a venture fund. Which might work. It's at least differentiated to give them credit, intellectually differentiated, you know, in the market differentiated. But my belief is that high quality, what we call a founders fund, N01 founders that change the world are pretty limited. They're about as scarce as left handers who can throw a baseball 95 miles an hour. And if you can't throw a baseball 95 miles an hour and you're not left handed, your chance of being a major league pitcher successfully through your career rounds to about zero. And most founders round to about zero. So giving the money isn't going to help you produce returns. That makes sense. Cool. Well, look, I think those are all my questions. I can let you get back to um, the Florida sun. It is sunny out here on the West Coast as well, but uh, probably not quite as warm as it is out there. Yeah, I've heard it's quite nice there right now. Uh, just hopefully, hopefully you don't have any crime, um, you know. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> um, no, but we're, uh, we're really excited if anybody anybody's listening and thinks, you know, our philosophy resonates with them. Reach out to me on Twitter or anywhere else. X, X. Oh, yeah, I forgot. Sorry. Yes. <laughs> and that is all the time we have. I want to thank Keith for taking the time. I want to thank you all for listening, for the ratings, for the reviews, for telling your friends and neighbors about this very fine podcast. We will be back next week again, as I said, with regularly scheduled programming. We've got a few great interviews lined up for the rest of the year before heading into Christmas. So yeah, it'll be great. Thank you for listening. Have a fantastic weekend and we'll talk to you very soon. Bye-bye. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone.